0: The following program is part one of two parts, each 90 minutes long. There is support material available at this website, including quizzes, handouts, and lecture outlines for all presentations. Consult the UCTV programming guide for the date and time part two, and other lectures in the series will be shown. Uh, We've got a lot of material to cover, as you saw by the the agenda that I put together, so I'll be talking rapidly and I might uh, overlook something, so if you've got a question, be sure and and yell and stop me here. Well, as Judy mentioned, we're talking about pesticides and I brought my own favorite bottle of pesticides with me. Uh, And I have to do a disclaimer at this point. What's wrong with this picture? It's an empty pesticide. What's wrong with that? of. It has to be disposed of. Why is that? It's not disposed of. It will be here when you come back in the second Okay. So what can you do? What's the legal uses of an empty pesticide container? Absolutely, this is a great crowd. Absolutely none. So why am I bringing it in here and using it as a teaching aid? You're huh? to <laughs> I, I try to, you know, I'm gonna, I'd to. lose it on the way. Actually, if the Ag Commissioner next door uh, saw me using this as an uh, empty pesticide container, he'd probably be whipping out his ticket book and writing me a uh, $2,500 fine or something like that for improper use of an empty pesticide container. So you've got to help me out here if the Ag Commissioner comes over and, and support me because I'm going to tell you that this is not an empty pesticide container. And Why is that? No, it's never been a full pesticide container. We got it from the uh, pesticide manufacturer as an unfilled container. So it can't be an empty pesticide container if it's, ever, if it's never been a full pesticide container. So you're going to vouch for me. You believe me, okay? Everybody's happy with that. Alright, so the topic today is, is pesticides. I'm going to be switching between uh, some overheads and some slides, so we'll have a little multimedia presentation here. Uh, Okay, if any of you were around in the 1950s and happened to open up a, uh, Saturday, or a Reader's Digest, you'd see this ad. This came from uh, an actual ad in the Reader's Digest in the 1950s. Pesticides at that time were just coming into use DDT was a very popular material. It had been developed during the war and had been used to, to protect soldiers from external parasites and, and all kinds of things. And it was our magic bullet. We were, we were going to solve all of our pest problems, at least our insect pest problems, with DDT. Actually, it's been a very valuable product. DDT alone has been responsible for saving millions of millions of lives because it was used and it still is being used today in some parts of the world for control of the ma- malaria bearing uh, uh, transmitting mosquito so without having used DDT many millions of people would have died from malaria because it was a very effective uh, material one of the reasons it was effective it lasts a long time it's a very long lasting uh, material like I say It's still being used today. In fact, it's being manufactured right here in California. Uh, And a few years ago, they even used a little bit in California for control of mosquitoes in uh, the Bay Area because of the fear for for malaria, and it was very effective. So, under certain circumstances, it, it has been used in the U.S., but it's basically been banned for about, oh, 20, 25 years in the U.S. for general use. One of the reasons being... That it sticks around for a long time and it causes a lot of uh, environmental contamination. We are very generous taxpayers. We're spending ten million dollars in the in the uh, Bay Area right now to clean up residues of uh, uh, DDT manufacturing plant that stick around for a long time. And they've got to take this stuff out of. The, they've got to remove the soil, haul it off, and decontaminate it. So thank you for your, your tax dollars for helping us there. Uh, they just take it to a storage site and store it in a, in a place where it doesn't leach through the environment. Yeah. Uh, there are other ways you can decontaminate. You can burn it, uh, incinerate it, but uh, you know, that tons of soil like that is very difficult to incinerate. Okay, well I gave you the, and you all had the right answer about the, the proper use of a pesticide container. Uh, last December there was a Little tiny picture in the corner of a reader of a uh, National Geographic magazine, and I want you to take a close look at this picture. This was a toy truck, model truck that was made by a 14-year-old boy in Senegal. The materials at hand that he was using were pesticide containers. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I mean, look at the skill. <laughs> uh, that it, to think of any 14-year-old boy being able to have that kind of a skill, but. To, how tragic it is that the materials that he had to work with were empty pesticide containers. This pesticide is manufactured in Italy. It's used in Senegal to control malaria mosquitoes. It's a pyrethroid. It's not a a, a totally hazardous material. It's it's probably one of the safer materials to use. But still, in its concentrated form, being exposed to these things. And I'm I'm sure those containers, because they don't have laws like we have in the U.S., those containers weren't properly rinsed to begin with. Even if they were, they still would have... uh, residues in them. Okay, well here's the first question of today. Before I get started, uh, let me go through some of the handouts. Obviously you all have read your your, uh, manual here, the chapter 10 on handling, everybody's read that, okay. I'm going to be following some of the things in there. I, I wrote part of that chapter, so uh, it's, it's, it's really coming from some of the other publications. If, if I don't answer all of your questions today, I have another book that I wrote called The Safe and Effective Use of Pesticides. This is really, as you can see, 400 and some pages, uh, very detailed. I don't think... It, the average person needs to use this. This is primarily written for commercial users of pesticides. It's a study guide for people who are taking the Department of Pesticide Regulation qualified applicator or uh, certificate or license exams. But it's also written as a general ref- reference. And so, if you really are into pesticides and want to know everything, you want to know about pesticides is in here. We have sort of an abbreviated version. Uh, that is developed for growers these are this is the, California requires growers who re- use restricted materials to become certified to take an exam uh, but they 're called private applicators and so it 's a different exam and we 've abbreviated this and, and made it much more simpler this This same book is also available in Spanish. should anybody be interested in that a couple of the other things that I brought along. Uh, Commercially, anybody who is working uh, around pesticides has to be trained by their employer, and we've developed training guides. This is the instructor's version. This is the employee's version. Uh, This training is required to be given to employees every year, and it's got to be specific to the pesticides that they're using. These these are very friendly formats. They're kind of a comic book type format, uh, and they are in English and Spanish, so there's and you'll be, I'll be showing some of the drawings and stuff from this just in my overheads because there's some great drawings there. Finally, I, I brought a, a game, and some of these are, are going to be showing up on my overheads too. In fact, this is one of them. This is called La Loteria de los Pesticidas. It's a board game that we use when we're training people about pesticides, mostly farm workers, and it's uh, uh, usually done in Spanish. It's based on a Latin American game called La Loteria, which is a gambling game. It's played like bingo. Each, each participant gets one of these cards. All the cards are different. And there's a collar that goes from this deck of cards. What we've done is taken a game that's very familiar to people in, in Mexico and South America and are using it to teach some pesticide safety principles because it bridges this language and cultural barrier. The, the minute a, a person from Mexico sees the game, they know how to play it because it'd be like us getting a, a bingo board put in front of us. We know how to play it. So it, uh, it's a very fun thing, fun way for them to uh, learn some pesticide safety principles here. Okay, what are pesticides? Give me. A definition of a pesticide Pest it kills pests okay that's basically the, the pesticide that's what the word means it kills pests it's a a lethal material for pests uh, okay uh, not all pesticides do kill pests though do they What are there some other kinds of pesticides that are pesticides that don't kill pests? Mm-hmm. Hormones something that regulates plant growth Or pest growth. Yeah. So plant growth regulators are pesticides. What else? Anybody gone hiking out in the woods and get attacked by mosquitoes and douse yourself with DEET? What is DEET? It's a repellent, and it's also what? It's a pesticide. Under the the legal. Definition of a pesticide anything that repels pests or alters the growth of pests or kills pests are pesticides Another group of pesticides that we don't think of are defoliants uh, Growers in the, in the cotton fields before they get ready to harvest. They'll spray uh, the, the fields with a defoliant. They'll dry up the leaves the, the, the tomato growers around here do that too You'll see they put some white stuff all over the fields and the leaves fall off and it makes it easier for them to harvest the uh, the tomatoes and so uh, anything that's applied to change the behavior of a plant or the, of the pest is a pesticide. Any questions about that? All right. Well there's all different kinds of types of pesticides and this is uh, where I want you to, to take a look at this main handout that I've, uh, the pesticide use in major crops. I'll be referring to this, only because you know, we're not going to try to, this is uh, particularly pertaining to pesticides that are used in, in agriculture, but there's a lot of useful information in here. So if you look at pages eight and nine of this handout, I've put together a list, there's probably about 40 different, 40 or so different items, uh, that are, are pesticides, Based, you know, the, the type of material is based upon the target pest and its function on the uh, pest. So the second item there, if you're going to be trying to control algae, you use an algicide. You want to attract a pest, you use an attractant. If you want to kill birds, you use an avicide. Why would you want to kill birds? Brood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we had a, a grower complaining a few years back who, who uh, had a large greenhouse operation in San Diego County who uh, had a terrible bird pest in his greenhouse, and what do you suppose that awful, disgusting, terrible pest was? It was a little hummingbird. Now, why would this little, tiny, cute hummingbird be a pest in his greenhouse? Absolutely, he was a flower grower, and it was cross pollinating, and it was ruining his product. Okay. Putting him out of business. So, you know, pest is in the eyes of the beholder, isn't it? And we, we attract hummingbirds to our home. We put out all this food and stuff for them. We really enjoy them. But this, this grower, this was public enemy number one to him because it was wiping him out. Well, they didn't put pesticides for him. He, I think he managed somehow or another to put some screening up to get rid of them. Yeah. But it just, just points out that, you know, we all have a perception of what a pest is, and other people may not have that same perception we uh, just look over this list and, and see the various different things, if snails for example we use molluscicides, uh, and nematodes we use nematocides, yes Susan. Now when you talk about a pesticide, is this sort of a generic all encompassing term that includes what you call herbicides? Absolutely. Now this is... Follient affects the plant not... Right. That's an excellent question. There is always a lot of confusion about, uh, you ask people if they use pesticides. no, I just kill weeds. You know, well, weeds are pests, right? And an herbicide that is used to kill a weed is a pesticide. So pesticide is the, the umbrella term for all of these materials. The herbicides, the defoliants, the, the plant growth regulators, the, the attractants, the, the repellents, those are all pesticides. Now, th- that, that's a legal term. The the federal government, the the, the U.S. EPA, that regulates pesticides, there's a federal law, and they're defined in that law. The law is called the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. And it doesn't talk about herbicides and other things, but it, it encompasses all of those. And for a pesticide to be used in the United States, it has to be registered. Well, it used to be. There's a there's a disclaimer of that, but most pesticides now have have always had to be registered with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and when they come into California, they also have to be registered in California with the Department of Pesticide Regulation before they can be sold or used. And there there are certain tests that they have to go through to make sure that they are safe that they're all well, safe relatively safe uh, but they if they're used on food products that the food residues the residues on that are, are within safe limits and things like that so uh, when we talk about pesticides I'm talking about this big spec everything that's on this list is considered a pesticide and you'll notice that herbicides are on there silvicides that are used to kill trees are on there uh, you know, they're, they're just all kinds of uh, materials that we wouldn't normally think of as being pesticides that are on that list that fall under that law and are regulated by both the the US EPA and the Department of Pesticide Regulation in California. Now I, I made this little disclaimer because last year a law was passed that, that uh, allowed certain materials that are being used were previously used and registered as pesticides not to have to be registered any longer with the EPA and there's still a lot of concern about that these are low impact materials the uh, minimal health hazard type materials things like sugar or uh, certain types of soaps and things like that Um, The problem is that some of these things are are slipping through that may have human health concerns or environmental concerns and they aren't being screened because they're exempt from this registration. So there's a a little bit of concern about that and it may go back. There there are recommendations in fact that that these materials, this whole group of materials, go back through the regular registration process. so that They are tested and, and found to be both effective and don't have these Uh, uh, side effects that that are undesirable. So, good question. Any other questions about that? Okay. So there are various different types of pesticides. And not only are there different types of pesticides, but there are different formulations of pesticides. Uh, And I'd like to see where my list is here. Your distilled green sheet that I gave you lists many of the Now this, these are some labels off of uh, some ag products that I just grabbed. The top one uh, is coside but it's got the letters DF after it. And what that means is it is, is uh, dry flowable. The uh, one below says Vindex 50WP. It's a 50% active ingredient of a wettable powder. And I've put all these little initials for what this means if you were looking at a pesticide label and you wanted to know what a ULV was, it was ultra low volume. So they they actually, the manufacturers that manufacture pesticides uh, use all these kinds of little uh, symbols after their names. They may be indicating the type of the formulation that's being used like a wettable powder here or the DF, the dry flowable up there. Or maybe sometimes how it is used. Uh, the RTU is one that, that we often see for, for household use. Ready to use RTU formulation. And even they've got one here, WK for weed killers, uh, TGF, turf, turf grass fungicide. And then sometimes they're talking about the characteristics of the, the formulation. Uh, low, vo- low volatility, low odor, double strength, 2X, something like that. And then there are some pesticides commercially used that that have specific notations after, like P and W, for they're only registered for use in the Pacific Northwest. And this other one I've got here is the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, pesticides are they're uh, registered for use there. So a little bit when you look at a label, uh, you might see some idea about the pesticide. Formula. Now the formulation is is kind of important. If you turn the sheet over, when you're using a pesticide, I've listed. Uh, many of the the standard common formulations there, and each one has different characteristics as far as how it is is to be handled and the the hazards that are involved. Powders, for example, can blow up into your face and get into your eyes and on your skin, and so they have a higher degree of of toxicity, uh, especially if you're going to inhale them or or get them in your eyes. They also, most of the, the wettable powders, are uh, materials that are bound to clay particles, and clay is abrasive. And so, through application equipment and pumps and things like that, they can abrade the equipment. So, they, they are abrasive. They also don't stay in, in, in solution. So, if you use a wettable powder, how many of you have used a wettable powder? Pesticide. You put it in water, and you've got to keep it stirred up, or it sinks out. Now, a wettable powder can be uh, compared to Nestle's Quick you put a spoonful of nested trick in a glass of milk or a glass of water and you stir it up and it, it, uh, you can't see through it. It's, it's a, a very opaque uh, looking solution. If you let it sit there for a while you'll see it starts settling out and, and settling to the bottom. So people that use these materials as pesticides uh, have to be, agi- the, the materials have to be agitated all the time while you're using them otherwise you don't get a uniform uh, application of this. Uh, the, the reason they don't dissolve in water, because most pesticides are petroleum based. And so, you know, oil and water don't mix. So they have to put materials in there to kind of get them to work, uh, mix together to stay in suspension. Um, a soluble, soluble powder doesn't have that problem, because it's, it dissolves into the uh, pesticide, into the water that you're mixing it with, and becomes a clear looking solution. It may change the color, but you can see through it, it's very trans- transparent. Uh, Such as if you, you put salt or sugar in a glass of water and you stirred it up You wouldn't see it there anymore. You know it's there because you can taste it, but you can see through the water It doesn't look like it's there um the, the liquid form of a wettable powder is an emulsifiable concentrate. This is a liquid material that you mix with water and gets very cloudy. How many of you ever used Lysol in the good old days before they changed the formulation? You pour a little bit of white Lysol into a bucket of water and it turns milky white, right? That's an emulsifiable concentrate. By the way, Lysol is a pesticide. Did you know that? Yeah. That's why you use it to kill pests. It's a, it kills bacteria and germs, and so and it's registered. It's got an EPA registration number on the label, as a pesticide. Okay. Um, and solutions, Roundup is one of those. If you ever used Roundup, you notice it's kind of an amber-colored uh, s- uh, liquid, and you pour it in d- with water, and it it's still you can see through the water. The water is still transparent; changes the color of the water slightly, but it's, it's a so it goes into solution. Sometimes pi- we use dusts as pesticides. Uh, have any of you used pesticide dusts? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. You, sulfur it's one of the more common ones absolutely what's that bt is not it's usually applied with water though don't you spray it well, yeah, the you the powder well yeah okay yeah so it's and, and some of your your snail baits and your ant baits are are that way too okay so look at this chart just to give you some idea that if you're applying this some of the hazards associated with those formulations uh, a formulation is just uh, what a manufacturer does to make this product easier to handle and easier to use. Question over here. Is Chlorox uh, registered as a pesticide what for finism? For what? Chlorox. Re- yeah, I know, but is it registered for what? Is, is it registered as a pesticide? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Chlorine, uh, the, the stuff you put in your swimming pools, even the stuff that you have under your sink, has an EPA registration number on it. It's registered as a pesticide. That's probably the most widespread Yes. Right. Yeah. People don't think of that. It's also used in agriculture. They use it for disinfecting equipment. They use it in in packing sheds for disinfecting the equipment there. Um, But yeah, a lot of the things we don't generally think of as pesticides are indeed pesticides, and they are regulated by the the EPA and the state of California. Yes. Are are different formulations today? the form that they're in make them have a longer shelf life? Sometimes sometimes the formulation. Now, with the formulation, there there are materials that are put into the the pesticide. When you look at a pesticide label, it'll tell you somewhere on here, uh, active ingredients, this is 41% active ingredient in this jug right here. That means that the other uh, 59% is what they call inert ingredients. When they say inert, on the the pesticide label, that doesn't mean that it's inert. Okay, what does it mean? It doesn't have have any pesticidal action. It does not affect the pest. It's there to make this easier to use, to make it store longer, to keep it from freezing, uh, to make it stick to the plant, to make it translocate through either the insect or the plant, various different things like that. It is used that way. This is kind of an interesting Label. This is an old Roundup. I don't. You can't buy this anymore. But it has a signal word warning on it because it's more toxic than or more hazardous than the, the Roundup that you buy today. If you bought a, a jug of Roundup today, it would say caution on there. <laughs> Why is that? It's the same material, but they've changed the inert ingredients. The inert ingredients in this jug at this at the time this was manufactured were hazardous to your skin and to your eyes. And they've safened that by putting different ingredients in there. And so the, the new roundup does not have the signal word warning on it. Uh, so th- these these materials that are called inerts are not truly inert. I mean, uh, benzene is often used as an inert ingredient. We all know that benzene is not inert, and benzene has been linked with causing cancer in people, and there's some concern. They're phasing out, or, or they're eliminating the uses of benzene as a... Uh, inert ingredient or an adjuvant. So these things that are in there may be just water, they may be oil, but they also may have some impact on how that pesticide works and make it easier to work, easier to store, various different things. So those are called adjuvants. You can also buy additional adjuvants to mix with your pesticide too. There are companies that sell these things. Stickers, spreaders, uh, emulsifiers, Defoaming agents. Roundup, as you know, is a is a. If you ever use Roundup, you shake it up a little bit, and you put water in there, and it just starts foaming up really bad. And you can put something in there that stops that foam. A defoaming agent is an adjuvant that you add. So we add adjuvants sometimes to pesticides after they're uh, mixed up, uh, so that it improves the way that pesticides can be mixed, can be handled, and, and applied. Or this, the manufacturers sometimes add these adjuvants to the, the container as the inert ingredients. All right, any, any qu- other questions about pesticide formulations? No. Both of these, uh, just mentioned to you, uh, coside up there has the signal word danger on it, but it doesn't have this uh, skull and crossbones symbol on it uh, that the Vindex does and that's we'll get into a little bit of that in a, in a few minutes but I just wanted to point out both of these uh, are the most hazardous level of, of pesticide. is basically copper and it's got the word danger right there because if you get copper in your lungs or in your eyes it can cause severe burning um, it's, it's really like copper sulfate that a lot of people use in their Bordeaux mixes uh, copper sulfate and hydrated lime uh, you buy a bag of copper sulfate, and it'll have the signal word danger on it. With the Vindex is an insecticide, actually, it's, it's a uh, miticide, and it's uh, got the skull and crossbones on there because it's very toxic to, to people, uh, and it could kill you. Uh, it, it, it won't interfere with your eyes or, or breathing, but it could actually kill you because it's very toxic. So, materials that are very toxic have the word danger, but they also must have the signal word, or have the, the skull and crossbones on it. Well let's talk about pesticide toxicity then and and the different signal words that sort of leads to what I was just saying here. Um, All pesticides are not the same level of toxicity and there's an old saying that the dose makes the poison. So anything in our environment that we should be exposed to at at such a a high level or, or even low level, depending on the toxicity of the material, the dose, how much we take in Is enough to either kill us or make us ill, and we know that if you ate so much salt in one sitting, salt could be deadly. It could kill you if you ate so much salt or sugar, or or, uh, M&Ms or you know candy bars, things like that. A certain level of any of these things is toxic to us. All things in our environment are toxic to us depending on the dose. Pure water. If you sat and drank gallons and gallons and gallons of pure water, it would probably kill you. I mean, you probably. It wouldn't be able to do, take in that much but pure water can be toxic at, at a certain dose. What we're dealing with with pesticides are materials that have a lower or, or higher toxicity levels uh, to us so they take smaller amounts to cause us harm. Toxicity also means not necessarily poisonous but can cause uh, skin irritation, eye burns, things like that so that it can cause damage to us. So all pesticide labels except those new, that new group that I was talking about earlier uh, that, is exempt, that are exempt from registration, all other pesticide labels must have one of three signal words on them. And I mentioned that the word danger being the most hazardous. We pointed out that this roundup has the, caution, the signal word warning on it, and then everything else has got caution on it. So most dangerous, moderately dangerous, and then the least hazardous materials have the word caution and so that's the, your first when you, when you pick up a pesticide container the first thing you should look at is the signal word that's part of the registration every pesticide that's registered by the EPA in the state of California has a signal word on it and that'll give you some idea of how hazardous it is like I said, if it has the danger plus a skull and crossbones symbol on it it's the most, most toxic, most hazardous to you handle those with care or don't use them at all so many of the materials we use have the signal word warning on them, those are moderately hazardous to us. Uh, most of the stuff that you would encounter would have the signal word caution, and try to stick with those the words if possible, Always, you know, if you have a choice, look at the, the signal word and, and try to get one that uh, is the least toxic. Now what this means is that those materials have been put through some sort of a test by the manufacturers required as part of the registration to do some some testing. They often test them on animals, well here I'm, I'm demonstrating rats, they do it on various different rattle, r- animals uh, they may do it on some birds, they may do it on fish uh, but what they determine is the, the LD50 which is the lethal dose that will kill 50% of the test animals and that's what this little red dot up here is is the LD50 for this particular pesticide If you if you go over here, you say the LD50 see it's at 50 percent right here, the LD50 is 10. That's 10 milligrams of this material, per kilogram of body weight of the animal. and I'll explain what that means in a minute here. but so the LD50 determines what the uh, signal word is going to be on that pesticide.. So Uh, A lethal dose of fifty is that the warning? That that it depends. Let let me just look at this next chart here, and you'll see what that is. Uh, These, if if you want to follow around in your handout on pages fourteen and fifteen, the big thick one that I gave you, the the, uh, pesticide use, page fourteen and fifteen. These charts are, are on there. This one, especially. Now these are oral, you know, they, they also do a, a dermal skin application and they'll do an inhalation app, uh, part, of the, uh, the LC50. Uh, but an oral LD50, if, if 50 milligrams of this material per kilogram of body weight of the test animal kills 50% of those test animals, the LD50 is uh, considered, it's considered to be a, a pesticide that has got the signal word danger. If, the, uh, if it takes between 50 and 500 milligrams per kilogram of body weight of the animal, uh, it gets the signal word warning. And if it's over 500 milligrams per kilogram of body weight of the test animals, it's given the signal word uh, caution. Now that's the oral. Now the, the, the lethal, there, there's, uh, they do an LC50, lethal concentration in either water or air, for 50% of the uh, test animals. And that's, uh, again, 0.2 milligrams per liter uh, is enough to kill 50% of the test animals and it's given the signal word danger. And then uh, the LD50 for dermal for applied to the skin because many pesticides do transfer through the skin into the internal part of the body if it has an LD50 of 200 or or less uh, milligrams per kilogram of body weight of the test animal. It, it will uh, get the signal word "danger." So this is how they determine that. And I'll I'll translate that. Now there are certain pesticides like that uh, copper sulfate that I was showing you there uh, gets the signal word "danger" because it has if it gets into the eyes and causes it will cause corneal opacity that's not reversible in seven days. Uh, so they test it on the eyes to see how. Uh, uh, corrosive it is, and so if it has special hazards like that, it may not, you may be able to eat a pound of it and not, not have any effect, but it gets in your eyes and it burns your eyes and, and it, it lasts for more than seven days, and it's pretty uh, hazardous, so they give it a signal word danger now this next can I ask a question? I'm looking at the danger Caution to start with the top one. Mm-hmm. Fifty milligrams is danger. Right. Five hundred is warning. It keeps increasing. That's right. The higher the number, the higher the LD fifty, the least less toxic the material is. The smaller the number, the more toxic. And I'll show you this in just a, this next overhead. It shows that it's also in your handout. As you can see, the ones I've. Uh, colored red up there, have the signal word danger, the ones that are kind of the orangey color are are warning and the yellow ones are uh, got the signal word uh, uh, caution the three at the top, the most toxic one up there has a lethal LD50 of 0.79, that means 0.79 milligrams of that material per kilogram of body weight of the test animal would be enough to kill 50% of those test animals 0.79 milligrams per kilogram of body weight but well, what does that mean? I, I've translated that down here at the bottom for that aldicarb that for a 150 pound human it would require 0.002 ounces of that material to kill 50% of us in this room okay? now methoprene, which is has got the highest number here 34,600 milligrams Per kilogram of body weight, methoprene, you know, is the growth regulator that's put in your flea spray uh, to keep the flea larvae from, from changing from, from larvae to adult. It's the adult that does the biting and gets on your pets. So it's a growth regulator. Most of us have, if you've got pets and if you've used a flea spray around the house, it contains methoprene. It has its high LD50, 34,600. So that that means it would take you would have to ingest 5.119 pounds 19 of that, and if each of us in this room sat down and ingested 5.19 pounds of LD, of, of this methylpene, we'd probably keel over. Yes? I have a question. Aldicarb, is that actually a carbamate? It's an N-methyl carbamate, aldicarb, yeah, it's Timic. Uh, have you heard of Timic? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, in fact, do you remember the watermelon fiasco about 10, 12 years ago when um, some of you do, are shaking your heads? Uh, There was a, over the 4th of July, you know everybody buys watermelons over the 4th of July and people were eating watermelons and getting sick and being rushed to the hospital. And they started checking around trying to figure out what was going on. Aldicarb is an insecticide, it's used to control insects. It works systemically, it's put into the soil and it it comes up through the soil picked up by the plant and it keeps, protects the plant from insects that feed on them. It's not registered for use in watermelons. And so people didn't think, you know, the people are getting sick from aldicarb. Or, you know, why they ate watermelons? Why would they be getting sick? Uh, but finally, they put it together. There were some unscrupulous growers, heaven, you know, unscrupulous growers, uh, who were trying to make an extra buck. And they, aldicarb also has another effect on melons. It causes them to get bigger. And so they were. These growers were applying the, the aldicarb in the soil. It was being picked up by the watermelons, and it didn't break down like it was supposed to. Uh, and they got caught. It, it seriously caused people to get very sick. Fortunately, in methyl carbamate uh, poisoning, is readily reversible in the body. So, by the, and that was another thing that it took them a while to figure out what was happening. Because by the time the person who was violently ill at home got to the emergency room and they got him settled down, they couldn't find it. It, it had been metabolized in their body and uh, they they couldn 't trace it, and also it had broken down to another compound that they weren 't looking for, so it, it took a while for them to figure it out, but they traced it back, and they found out it was uh, the in methyl carbamate, all the carb that was applied to the melon fields, which is really was supposed to be put on cotton fields, uh, but you know, so they you know they caught the people they 'd find them uh, they didn 't have laws at that time to find them heavy enough. I think it was $2,500 fine or something like that. Now they've got, they've changed the laws and they've got massive fines for people that, that do that. Uh, Bacillus thuringiensis, somebody mentioned that, has an LD50 of 15,000. That's 15,000 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. So it's you know fairly non-toxic. The bigger the number, the less toxic the material is. Question over here. Uh, they are similar, yeah. They're they're the uh, uh, phenoxy herbicides. Phenoxy. phenoxy herbicides. Yeah. Uh, pardon? Yeah. Because it has. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're they're safe. You know. Uh, uh, there, there could be a lot of problems. Any of these things, like I say, in the amount of exposure that you get to them, can be harmful to you. Even methoprene. If you ate five pounds of it, you know, uh, obviously, you, nobody's going to sit around and eat five pounds of methoprene. Now, this is the active ingredient in these things. This isn't. This isn't like the Roundup. Roundup on here is it's got a. Uh, it's glyphosate. There, it's got four thousand three hundred. That's only the active ingredient. So, this is only forty percent. Uh, active ingredient in here, so that means you'd have to, to gobble down a lot more than, than uh, uh, just the act, active ingredient because it's mixed. Question over here. Okay. Well, um, Back to the uh, watermelons, like when we import a lot of fruits from foreign countries, and their regulations aren't like ours on the end, insecticides. And do we put a lot of that in and some of the things aren't safe to eat? Okay, the question is, that when we buy uh, produce that it's brought in from other countries, uh, is, it, is it safe to eat? Oftentimes, the, the pesticides that are used on those produce in, in other countries are not registered for use in, in the United States or in California. But there is an inspection that takes place when they are brought into the U.S. For, to looking for residues and that's what we're, we're really concerned about is that is that thing you know, that apple or the orange or the, the peach or whatever is coming in have residues of some pesticide on it that's above what is are known to be known tolerance and as long as it meets that residue tolerance level and it is something that's not banned in, in the United States now most remember most produce that you buy in the marketplace even if it's been grown with pesticides does not exhibit any residues by the time it gets to you about Probably, I think the, the USDA has done tests on this, and about 80% of all the produce in a grocery store, no matter how it's grown, will not have pesticide uh, detectable pesticide residues on it. So it, it's difficult then to, to tell what's been put on it. Like, is that clear? Is that okay? Uh, so when when Rayleigh says we have we will only sell pesticides that have no detectable residues on, uh, we only sell produce that has no detectable residues on it. Doesn't mean it has been grown without pesticides. It means that when it gets to the store, they don't have any detectable pesticide residues on them. It may be grown without, or they could have used a whole lot of things on it, but these things break down at different rates. Question? That was my question yeah. about the local grocery corporation that Yes. Says we test. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, markets like Rayleighs. I think, they have their own testing where they test the produce to see if they can detect residues. Question's here. DDT, we don't, we're not allowed to use it in this country. That's right. We're in the tropical countries where we get grapes and other things from. Uh, we them there, and then... That's right. They would detect them if, 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 that, if that comes, because DDT doesn't break down very fast, and so it would be detectable, and it would not be allowed in this country if it had DDT at residues all. at all. Okay. Yeah. And, and my question is also on the DDT, because, um, inside of the meat of any of the animals? Um, we're, we're saying that it sticks around for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is, it possible, um, is it possible that um, we're receiving the BDT that we, of course, manufacture and sell to somebody else because you can't use it here Um, Are we receiving it back in our food, in say canned food? Okay, I'm going to not answer that question because we're going to we're going to demonstrate that in a few minutes. Okay, that's a good uh, segue into another part of the thing. But you'll you'll get that question answered before the end of the day. Okay. Any other questions? That was a great question. Just came at the wrong time. Okay. So everybody understands what LD50s are and what they mean. Okay, so the lower the number, the more toxic the material is. Okay, well, now we, we talk about how pesticides work. This is another thing that uh, uh, there's a, the, the white handout that I passed out here, the, the white sheet. Pesticide chemical groups. You, have, you all have that? Okay. There again, we use the word pesticide. Remember, it's a big umbrella term. It means a lot of different compounds, and they all have different modes of action. And what we're talking about here is how pesticides work is how they kill or cause changes in that pest. And that's the mode of action. Uh, we have a group of pesticides that are, uh, have been widely used. After DDT uh, was banned, we switched to the organophosphates and the methyl carbamate insecticides. These are nerve poisons, and uh, so they interfere with the the nerve conduction from the brain to the the muscles. And if you've ever used a a cockroach spray and you see the cockroach flipping over on its back and wiggling its legs, you've you've got to its central nervous system and you've interfered with its nervous system. And it would happen to you if you got a big enough dose that would be exactly what would happen to you. You'd flip over on your back and you'd be convulsing and wiggling your legs in the air uh, because it does interfere with nerves. Uh, and so, uh, they're, they're listed here as, as central nervous system and synaptic poisons. And so, when, we, when we, there's a, a signal coming from our brain telling us to move our arm, uh, our, our nerves are not like electric wires. They're, they're uh, organic materials at the, the cells where the nerve signal moves from, from part of the cell to the other. And there are junctions between nerves and between nerves and muscles and there's a chemical reaction that takes place at that junction uh, so that when the nerve signal gets to that junction it sends a chemical reaction so it, trans- it goes across that space, there's a little tiny space this chemical goes across that space and causes the muscle to react or the, the next nerve in the, in the line to send the signal on down and there's a, a chemical called acetylcholine that's produced that, that uh, sends that signal from one nerve to the other, or from a nerve to a muscle and many of these pesticides that are nerve poisons interfere with that. In order for that signal to be discrete, there's another chemical that the body produced called uh, uh, cholinesterase. And that erases that. So if, if we didn't have that on-off switch when, we, when you, your brain told you to, move, to flex your arm, your arm would flex, but you would be standing there flexing all the time. You couldn't let go. And so it's this cholinesterase that comes in and erases that acetylcholine and allows it to flex. So there's a pulse of this and then there's a, the acetylcholine comes in there and then the, the cholinesterase destroys it. Well, what these materials do are interfere with the action of the cholinesterase. Okay, so Basically, what happens is that you lose control. When you go to flex a muscle, it contracts and it doesn't relax. You get convulsions. Your, your pupils of your eyes dilate. You start sweating. You get stomach cramping. All kinds of things happen like that. These are central nervous system uh, components. And uh, so it, they, they work on insects and they work on people. And, and most of the animals have uh, cholinesterase and acetylcholine uh, patterns in their bodies. Cholinesterase, C H O L I N, E S T R A S E, cholinesterase, and we have blood tests. It's the only pesticide that we have right now that can be, de- you know, you can do a blood test to find out if you've been exposed to some of these pesticides, some of the organophosphate or in methylcarbamate pesticides, and that blood test measures the the cholinesterase level in your blood. Usually, we have a certain baseline level. If that suddenly drops. It indicates that you may have been exposed to this. Other things in the environment will also lower that alcohol consumption, heavy alcohol consumption will lower your cholinesterase levels. Uh, But uh, people who handle these materials, in fact it's a state law in California, if you handle these materials for more than seven days in any 30-day period, you have to be monitored by a physician and have your cholinesterase regularly monitored. And if your level drops, they know that you've probably been exposed to a certain, you know, uh, harmful level, and they take you. If you cannot use those materials for a while, so employers have to keep records and keep their employees uh, monitored. It's one of the very few tests we have for immediate detection of exposure to some of the pesticides. There's only only this one group of pesticides. So this this is for your reference. If you want to know how these things work, I'm not going to go into all of it because some of them are fairly technical. But typically, they questions over here. Yeah, we use a lot of I use a lot of pumitrin, and it's got this thing called axonic poison. Okay. So. And that's a nerve poison. The axon is the nerve that, that that goes from the muscle from the brain to a muscle, and so it, it does interfere with nerve conduction. We're in here that say unknown how they act. Yeah, at the time that I put this together there was no information on, on how they, they act. And and sometimes that's true, you know. They know it works, but they don't really know what the mechanism is. Yeah. And you have antibiotics as Antibiotics? Mm-hmm. Was, the very last one. Yeah. Is that a what? I I, it just it's just because it's a different group. Huh. i say I've got them do, you know, done by insecticides, herbicides, uh, various and antibiotics' it's a different group of bacteria uh, so absolutely yeah If it's used, because a, uh, a germ, a bacteria, a virus, is a pest, chlorine. like the chlorine is used to, to kill those things absolutely yeah well, I would try to pest. right, yeah anything that 's used to control a pest now, some pesticides that are used medically you 're given a mat- an antibiotic to kill a virus or a, a bacteria in your body. They're not registered by the U.S. EPA because they are a medicine. So the USDA uh, or U.S. uh, What is it? The drug FDA. The FDA is is the group that regulates that. Veterinary materials are also regulated by other uh, groups. But if it's applied to a Externally to control virus, a bacteria, or some other microorganism, externally, then it comes under EPA registration. So a vermicid belongs in the FDA. Right. Right. Okay. How are we doing here? Okay. Who uses pesticides? How many in this room use pesticides? Now that I've redefined pesticides for you, probably all of us all use pesticides, right? Okay. Well this is uh, where we can go and take a look at some of the slides. Let's stop here for a minute and turn on the slide projector. Okay, uh, well driving up and down the the Central Valley you've probably seen this or even around here every once in a while growers, this is a tomato field actually that's being sprayed I think in Yolo County. by an aerial aircraft and what they're doing is really putting on the, the defoliant to uh, to defoliate the tomatoes before they're being harvested as you can see if you looked at it really close you could see they're ripe in there this is in the Salinas Valley, this is lettuce, this is your lettuce crop shortly uh, after being planted and uh, it is uh, being sprayed for both fungus and insecticides it's being done at night as you can see the the lights are on in the tractor because that's when people aren't out in the fields, it's a good time and in that area the the wind has died down uh, about this time of day this is an orchard application, a very typical way people uh, apply pesticides in orchards using this air blast sprayer Uh, there's a very powerful fan in the back, a great big fan about this big uh, that puts air out at about a, a hundred miles per hour and there's nozzles all the way around the edge of that fan you can see These nozzles, and it shoots the the spray up into the trees, because some of these trees, you know, big walnut trees, are very tall, and you have to to get that air moving up there. You got a question here? Well, I was just going to comment. It must be going away from. It's driving away from us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is behind the driver. Sometimes pesticides are applied in irrigation water. Here's another tomato field. Actually, I'm not sure that this is it's being applied at this time. It's just showing the uh, uh, type of irrigation that's taking place. But it's very common for growers to, to put certain pesticides in the irrigation water when they're doing an irrigation because it's an efficient way to apply them. And that's one of the first things when we're training people who work in the fields is not to drink or bathe or or anything with the irrigation water, because they don't know what's in there. It may be fertilizer, too. A lot of fertilizer goes through the irrigation water. You had a question here. So the action must be different. This this would be more like a a systemic, and the others might be more contact. That's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, where it gets into the soil, it, something like that. Uh, aldicarb would be one of those, although aldicarb is not usually applied through the irrigation system. It is put in as granules on the ground. And pesticides are applied as fumigants, and uh, we've all heard about methyl bromide. This is a methyl bromide application where the, it's a gas, and so it's, it's, it'll dissipate into the air unless you cover it. So as they apply it, they put down this plastic sheeting, and it's held on the soil for a certain period of time. And then uh, after 24, 48 uh, so hours, they take off the plastic sheeting and then allow this stuff to off-gas. Uh, so that's uh, one of the, the big controversies right now because methyl bromide is an ozone uh, depleter, and so they're, they're, it's being phased out for that reason. Uh, this is uh, carnations. I'm sorry. In a greenhouse uh, it'd be, you know, greenhouse operations, oftentimes, because of the nature of the intensity and the, the close planting and everything, uh, a lot of diseases, a lot of insects get in there. And so they have to, for, for flower growers, have to use a whole lot of pesticides to keep the flowers from dying before they get to market. This is one that's not done this way anymore, but maybe this—this this is what you, you're thinking about in the, uh, your livestock. This is an old-fashioned photo, but I just like to put it in, knowing full well we don't do it this way anymore. But we do use pesticides on livestock to control external parasites. And I don't know whether you've ever seen nose bot, and, and these are flies that go up into the nose of animals and they're really painful and uncomfortable for the animals. So they protect the animals from these. Uh, insects by putting on some type of, of pesticide. And oftentimes we're doing that with our pets at home. If you've got a cat or a dog and you use the, the, the new little things that you put on the back of their neck uh, to control fleas and to control uh, heartworm things like that, that's the same idea. In fact, we they use some pesticides medicinally. Uh, have you ever suffered from motion sickness and used the little uh, behind your uh, ear. That's an organophosphate material, nerve poison. And it works because it does poison your nerves. I mean, what it's doing is being absorbed through the skin, and it's, it's a, an acetylcholine inhibitor. It stops this reaction. So it's doing the same thing that it would be doing if, if you were exposed to pesticides. So uh, they be barbiturates in some way? What's that? they be barbiturates in some form or uh, no, it's not a no it 's not a verbitute no it is it is a uh, uh, organophosphate insect well, it 's like an insecticide yeah. but that 's what is, is used in that patch so, so sometimes it has good uses too you know uh, very often we we use pesticides around the home, call in bugman pest control or some other company and uh, to to spray for ants or uh, you know various different pests around our home so a lot of pesticides are used there. Uh, And then we get off the cannerate or whatever it is for our own use to control the ants and and whatever. You know, cockroaches used to be the number one uh, uh, pest in homes for many, many years. When you look at, you you rated the the top ten pests, cockroaches were always the the number one pest in homes. And they've lost that uh, space. In fact, they're down to number ten now. What do you think number one is? Yes. absolutely everybody knows that don 't have to tell you that you know that don 't you the early yeah. good early are they still number one i I, I understand that they, throughout the state they 've really dropped their and most of the control for cockroaches is non chemical it 's uh, sanitation and it 's excluding them and and if they do use chemicals they 're using things like boric acid, which is you know uh, is a pesticide again? poric acid used for cocker's control is pesticide, and these little sticky traps and things like that—they're very effective. And we used to use flea collars on pets, uh, but now I think most people have, uh, have refrained from doing that. Flea collars are impregnated; it's a plastic that's impregnated with a pesticide that, that protects the pet from the flea. Uh, we also have uh, many people still give their pets the pills for dog heartworm. Uh, that's a pesticide. Uh, dog heartworm. Any, any of you have dogs that you treat for dog heartworm? Yeah. Dog, it, when, you, when you talk about malaria and you talk about dog heartworm, it's, it's a very similar process. The, the dog heartworm is transmitted by mosquitoes. It's a, it's a filarial worm, yeah, uh, and these things live in the, the circulatory system and the heart and lungs of the, the animals. And you know it used to be it took a long time, and especially in this area with the, the veterinarians who were not familiar with the life cycle of this filarial worm, they would take a blood test of the dog and they wouldn 't find it, but the dog was exhibiting terrible symptoms, and so we 're trying to figure out what what 's going on here. Uh, these things are, are well adapted to the, the the feeding cycles of the mosquitoes. so when you take your dog to the vet at ten o 'clock in the morning or two o 'clock in the afternoon, they take a blood test they can 't find the microfilaria in the blood. But if you go at 6 o'clock at night or 7 o'clock at night and took the blood test on the same dog, you'd find them. Now, why is that? Because these things stay in the central part of the heart and lungs until the feeding time of the mosquito, and then they come out to the peripheral blood vessels. Oh, Just like malaria. That's exactly like malaria. Now, in malaria, you know, malaria is cyclic. People have you know, 24-hour malaria or 48-hour. It's always une- uneven, and it's... Geared to the feeding cycle of the mosquitoes. Isn't that amazing? So the, the, uh, the pills and the medications that we give our pets for dog heartworm uh, destroy these microfilarial worms. Now, they grow up and it, they get really big. If, if it's untreated, these things, these things can get you know two or three feet long wound up in the heart and lungs of the animal. Question in the back, yeah? The mosquitoes feed on the dog, yeah. and the mosquito transmits the microfilarial worm from a, from a previous host. It feeds on a dog or a coyote or a fox or something like that that is carrying this uh, heartworm, picks it up in its uh, system, and when it goes feeds on the, the, your your dog, it'll uh, drop a few of those little microfilarial worms on the skin of the dog, and they'll go in through the skin through the puncture wound and infest the dog. But, but the worms stay inside. They stay inside. Of they don't come out. They, they, they go out to the per, peripheral blood vessels. They stay oh, in the okay. circulatory system, yeah. Do yeah, I have a question over here? Okay. Yeah, here's one. Do they just go for dogs? They don't go for cats? No, they go for cats. They're, they're, there's Right now, there's a higher incidence. Uh, they're, they're starting to see more and more dog heartworm in cats. I personally have a cat that's been treated for dog heartworm. So you should take your cat? Like, should you have, have your, your you, yeah, the, 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 uh, the usually the material I can't remember, but um, what's the material that you put a little drop on the back of the, it? Is Advantage? Yeah, it it is for control of heartworm and fleas, both on cats and dogs. The advantage is only there's another one. There's Revolution. Some, Revolution. Okay, all right. Thank you. Yeah, that's the one we just got for our cat. Yeah. It was unheard of in cats before and now the last several years they're starting to see more of it. Well I thought I'd like to show you this. Uh, this came from the Department of Pesticide Regulation. It's, they track the pesticide use in California and the, where all of our pesticides are being applied. And these are the top ten uses in the state of California in the year 2000. And it's very. It, stays about the same every year. So you'll see wine grapes and table grapes are the number one users, number one and number two users, of pesticides in California. This is based upon per pound of active ingredient. And what do you think the most common pesticide used on grapes is? Sulfur. Sulfur. And it's heavy and they use, it's 100% active ingredient when they put it out there as a dust or a spray. So obviously that's uh, why it gets that distinction. They use a lot of other pesticides on grapes as well, but Almonds are number three, processing, processing tomatoes are number four, cotton is five, oranges are six, strawberries are seven, carrots are eight, rice is number nine. This is in that year. And look at number 10. That's our homes. Well, that's good. Number 10 is our homes. Uh, the the t- number 10th uh, user of uh, pesticides in the state are our homes. Now, we grow 350 crops in California, and homes are in number 10 here. So. Uh, there have been some studies. Where do you think most pesticides are used on a per acre basis? Well, In your home, yeah. A grower, uh, if you compare on a per acre basis any of these crops to a home, the homes are using four or five times more active ingredient per acre than, than any of these other crops here. And it's contained too. And it's a, yeah, it's contained. Where are most of the, the truly toxic pesticides being used though because the sulfur of which I don't think is all that toxic sort of distorts the, the information. So if well, harmful uh, you know it depends on whether you're talking about toxic in, in the number of cases of injury and illnesses that occur from those pesticides or toxic in uh, just the, the, the toxicity ld50 of the material of course uh, probably I would say cotton. Uh, let's say cotton probably be the, would have the most toxic pesticides as far as potential harm to people. So this is where uh, pest, where, where people who are uh, using pesticides, it's where the top 10 are. Uh, The year before this actually structural was number nine, so it's it's somehow dropped a little bit taken dropped down a a little bit Now most of the pesticides that Well, not most of but many of the pesticides used in agriculture and, and in these other crops are also used around the homes But there is a difference when we go out and buy the pesticide at Walmart versus going to John Taylor fertilizers or someplace to buying that And it is the the active ingredient you may go down to Walmart and buy some Roundup, but it's not going to say 41 percent active ingredient. You know, it may say 0.1 percent active ingredient. Is it 11 percent active ingredient? Okay. Uh, where this is 41 percent active ingredient, and you're going to pay a lot more for the material in, in, in Walmart. Uh, but go for the cap. The, what does the purple cap say? That's forty-one percent. Okay, can you get that at Walmart? Mm-hmm. Do you the Orchard Supply. Store. Yeah. Yeah. Pardon? One hundred twenty-eight dollars for a pint. Yeah. This this jug here uh, would cost two hundred bucks. Two and a half gallons for two hundred bucks. And you're getting forty-one percent. Right. Yes. Label on, on is that do you the yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the reason reason you don't want to go down to to uh, John Taylor and buy your, your pesticides because it is more hazardous because you remember, forty one percent or or fifty two percent active ingredient versus what you would do in a home is is much more hazardous, it's more dangerous to work with. You need uh, more protective clothing. To handle it properly, you know it's. uh, And besides, the minimum you can buy, you know, is two and a half gallons. And why why, why would you use two and a half gallons worth of roundup for practically a lifetime supply around a home? You're having to store it and everything. Okay. Pardon? Well, I'm thinking of some friends of mine who grow grapes. Oh yeah, for, for something, you know, more commercial. One, they grow They have eight or two, and they're out there, and they're around, so three of got together and bought that? Yeah, when, when they're using it in that way, yeah. Multiple people are using it over a larger area. So it's it's safer for, for homeowner use to stay with the homeowner packaged material. Even though you're paying more per pound of active ingredient, a lot more, uh, it's still safer to handle. A lot of times, it's, a lot of the roundup you can buy is ready to use. It's in the spray bottle, squirt bottle, and it's already mixed. You don't have to, to expose yourself to the, the concentrated materials to mix it up. So any questions about that? Well, let's run back to the slides for a minute and, and look at why we use pesticides. This so, will... Well, if the tomato you had in your sandwich today looked like this, uh, this is a tomato fruit worm feeding on a tomato, and uh, everybody knows what the black stuff is around there, right? That's the frass. we call it frass. Uh, it's what comes out the other end when they feed on the tomato. And you know, I, I don't know a single grower that could sell a tomato that looks like that, right? Uh, but uh, and that's the same insect, actually. This is the, the corn earworm, but it's, it's called the corn earworm when it's in your, your ear of corn. It's the tomato fruit worm when it's in, in and it's called the, the cotton bullworm when it's in the cotton. And see this nice little pest feeding on somebody's orange? That's another reason why people use pesticides. Do you know what this one is? The Mediterranean fruit fly, the infamous fruit med- bed fly here. Now this is a, a really interesting insect. Uh, did anybody grow, grow walnuts around here? I'm familiar with the walnut husk fly? They're very closely related and they have very similar uh, life habits. The walnut husk fly is well established in this area. The fruit fly we're trying to, to keep out. But this, this fly, uh, at this point, it's probably on a, it looks like it's on an orange. It's laying an egg in that orange and that larvae, that egg will hatch out into a larvae and it will feed on the inside of that orange and when it gets time for it to pupate, it's going to drop off and bury itself in the soil two or three feet, maybe five feet below the surface of the soil wow. That's my bird. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it's going to stay in the soil probably over the winter, it's going to stay there and it'll, it'll uh, pupate and then it's going to emerge as this, this adult mate real quick, lay some eggs and die so there's a very short period of time when it's available for being controlled by anything, actually. Um, before the female can uh, the lay eggs, she has to mate, and she belongs to the, the, the group of, of insects called uh, diptera, which are flies and mosquitoes, and they all have to take a protein meal to, to produce their eggs. That's why the female mosquitoes are feeding on you. The males don't feed on you. It's the females that feed on you to get the protein to lay eggs. Same way with this the fruit fly, they, they are the, the med fly, they go around looking for some protein material to feed on so they can produce the eggs, lay them in the fruit and then they die. And So spraying the fruit after she lays the eggs isn't going to control those larvae that's in there, is it? When they drop off and pupate and they're five feet on below the soil you're not going to be able to get anything to them to kill either. So you've got to catch the, this female that's getting ready to lay eggs. And so what they do when they fly over San Jose with the spray planes what was it 10-15 years ago they were spraying malathion which is an organophosphate material and a protein bait. Most of what they were spraying, the sticky stuff that got on people's cars that were making them really angry was the protein bait it's a sticky gooey stuff it's attractive to the flies they feed on it, keel over and die and they don't lay eggs so it's the protein that attracts them the same process is being used to control husk fly in in, uh, walnut orchards uh, I don't know if you've ever seen what a husk fly does If you, uh, the, the, the walnut grows with a green husk around the outside that has to be removed and the, the walnut is inside in the shell this husk fly feeds just on the outside it doesn't go into the nut but it feeds on that husk and it, it turns the husk a really gooey, awful, ugly black color and you can't get that off so when they, they harvest the nuts that's an off grade uh, and it also promotes sunburn for the nuts so they get dark and, and even if the, you were able the nuts in there, it hasn't been harmed but it turns dark and the, you can't, the shell is a real black color so you, you can't sell it so they, they go out they don't have to spray the trees, they can spray the ground the weeds, whatever it is, with this protein bait with a little bit of malathion in it and the husk flies come along and they feed on it and they die, they don't lay eggs into the nuts same way with, with the Mediterranean fruit flies so that's What the process now with the the fruit fly, they have also figured out that if they mate with a sterile male fruit fly, they won't lay viable eggs, so it doesn't help. So, there are laboratories in Mexico and in Hawaii that are irradiating the males because the the, uh, husk flies uh, are established in Mexico and Hawaii, and that's why they do it in those laboratories. They irradiate the males to make them sterile, then they bring them over here to California and they turn them loose thousands, millions of these things, and they compete with the, the other males and they uh, uh, mate with the females and they are, the females are basically infertile. So that's a non-chemical control, although it requires radiation of the, the males, but they do that in Hawaii and uh, Mexico. Not in No, because they're having, they don't want any uh, fertile males imported into the US. They have to be tested for infertility before they're shipped over. Anybody recognize this pest? Star thistle. Yeah, it's one of the banes of our existence sometimes. So that's that's another pest that causes huge pests. And this cute little guy, of course, uh, various rodents are are pests around homes, in strawberry fields, and you know various places. Uh, California Almond Growers Exchange uh, runs an ad quite regularly. They want you to eat a can a week of almonds. You've heard that ad. Everybody's heard that ad. Well, these guys heard the ad too, <laughs> and they really went into it. They they eat a can a day. And one squirrel one squirrel can eat a can of almonds a day. The only problem is they don't buy them. You know they. <laughs> Um, the, the floods we had up in Yuba City, that the, a uh, few years back when the really bad floods, uh, the ground squirrels were uh, responsible for some of that because they're burrowing into the levees and weakening the levees and, and causing levees to break. So they're pretty destructive. They're cute guys, right? But uh, green yeah. rat treats. pardon? Right. Green rat treats. Green rat treats for, break the for poisoning them. Yeah. I mm-hmm. feel mm-hmm. anybody recognize this pest? These are nematodes, now you aren't seeing the nematodes, what you're seeing are the, the uh, little knots, that the, the, this is the root knot nematode, and, uh, they make these little cysts on the roots of the uh, uh, plant. I think this might be a, a fruit tree of some sort. And uh, they don't often kill the plants, but they certainly do weaken them and cause a lot of problems. And that, that field that we showed being fumigated with methyl bromide earlier was being treated for nematodes. Do oh, you recognize this one? Yeah, this is a good old scale. This one didn't need any pesticide. I don't know if you can see these little holes up here. Those are exit holes from the parasitic wasps that went in and killed the scale. So that was controlled naturally. And we talked about birds. Here's a, a very typical, in, in addition to the, the terrible little hummingbird down in San Diego County, you know, we have other birds that have problems here. And of course, everybody understands what this pest is. Now, there again, I, the pest is in the eyes of the beholder. When I was in graduate school, I studied spiders, and the spiders were my friend. They still are. I, I like spiders. I really relate to them, and I still kill black widows when they're in my basement. Though. Yeah. Pardon? They bite you, and that's Yeah. Uh, the incidence of black widow spider bites in California de- decreased in the 1920s when bathrooms moved indoors. Really significantly, so just a little bit of information you might be, <laughs> and you can, your imagination can go uh, on. The, uh. But uh, yeah, black uh, black widows are venomous. Their, their venom has been uh, characterized as twenty times more potent ounce per ounce than rattlesnake venom. But of course, they have a very small amount of venom compared to rattlesnake. the other thing about black widows uh... they have to get on a very thin part of skin. They're fangs that they use to inject the venom these spiders have fangs that sort of oppose like this when they go to bite you and they're they're less than a sixteenth of an inch long and so if your skin is thicker than a sixteenth of an inch they can't penetrate the skin and really cause a bite uh... children uh, are are probably most vulnerable to black widow spider bites and that's why we want to protect our children from black widow spiders they are also natural predators uh, a natural predator of black widows, if you want to give back black widows uh, biological control, are alligator lizards. It, they, they, they love to feed on black widows. They've done studies finding, looking at the stomach contents of, black, of alligator lizards and find that it's their number one food choice. And here's our now number 10 pest, uh, the cockroaches that, that uh, invade us. They uh, invade our homes. Anybody recognize this one? Yeah this is the the cat flea that you find on your dog. Now I don't want you to embarrass your dog and tell your dog that he has cat fleas but that's really what the kind of flea the dogs have. Uh, Cat fleas are the most common flea around here Uh, and this is a graduate student that volunteered to be photographed getting his arm bitten by a cat flea. In your um, handout book the big one that I gave you on pages 21 through 27 uh, I've listed three major crops in California, grapes, almonds, and cotton, and what I wanted to put this together to point out that, that there isn't just a couple of pests on in, any one of these crops. This is coming from the IPM uh, pest management guidelines, and you'll notice that there, for each of these uh, pest groups there are a lot of insects, diseases, mites, weeds, nematodes, and You know, you can get, our our project, I'm part of the statewide IPM project, Mary Louise Flint spoke with you uh, a few weeks ago, I guess, and we're both in the same uh, project. And our whole purpose of of existence is to reduce pesticide use in California by developing non-chemical or alternative methods to control pests and only using pesticides when they're absolutely necessary and so there's a lot of research going into that, but the research for a web spinning spider mite is going to be totally different than the research for a leaf hopper. so each one of these pests require just massive amount of research to find out how to control these things with a reduced amount of pesticides, since we haven't done that all yet so we can do IPM for, for some pests, but we haven't got all the solutions for some of the other we can get a biological control I And mean, we were getting pretty good at controlling mites with biological control using predatory mites in cultural practices but you know here we now have the glassy wing sharpshooter in grapes and you know we're still trying to figure out how to control these things so all of the, the the point here is just that there's a lot of different pests that we're all confronted with and each one of those pests is totally different than all the others, and the control for them is totally different. And so in the meantime, in order to grow these crops, people have to use some pesticides. Okay, can we get the rest of the lights on? I'm going to do a little bit of a... Uh, I'm talk about pesticides getting into the environment, and we're going to do this in a more practical way here. And it's going to also answer some of the questions that came up earlier, it's my props here. This is an interactive activity so you all have to participate um, no this is uh, you're only going to eat some pesticide we're going to feed you some pesticide here uh, it's actually going to be DDT I brought some DDT. I've got a really special formulation of DDT with me um, it kind of looks like tootsie rolls but uh, okay so I want to get uh, there's about room for 15 people per bag here, so we'll start passing these things out. I think we've got enough, I've got extras up here, uh, sorry. Let's see, Oops, excuse me. Now, you're going to have to use your imagination here. This is going to be very imaginative. Somebody down the road yesterday sprayed a little bit of DDT. They weren't supposed to, but they did, but it wasn't very much, didn't you know? really amount to much. But we're sitting here in this pond. This is a pond, right? Okay, everybody's uh, sitting around here in the pond. And you're all little organisms living in the pond. And I want you to take one of these uh, little slips of paper, and so that somebody should have, everybody should have one of these little slips of paper. Now when you get your DDT, I want you, don't want to eat it. Yeah, please don't. Okay, you'll ruin the whole uh, experiment at this point. All right. Uh, (laughs) Well, you'll get a chance to eat it before the the thing is over. Okay, Okay. take one of these and pass it on. You're going to get an identification. Uh, If if your life form didn't turn out what you thought you should achieve in life, I'm sorry. Uh, You know, it's just the way it, it is. You know, that's life, right? What we are going to be doing is bioaccumulating. Have you ever bioaccumulated before? Okay, this is your, you're going to be bioaccumulating. Yeah, actually you do it every day, okay. But we're going to be bioaccumulating with this special form of DDT. So as soon as everybody has their identification and their DDT in hand, see the T in DDT stands for Tootsie Roll, right? Okay. Okay, the rules are we're gonna be swimming around in this pond and you're gonna be carrying your DDT in one hand because that's what you pick up, this little molecule of DDT that was sprayed down the road. Did you get some DDT in some I plant? Died. Did you get some over here? Oh, no, you gotta you got get everybody in this. Everybody got DDT in, in a life form, they're, they're identified? Okay, I want the plankton to get up and swim around in the pond and you can move all over the place here, come on now. Now yeah, look at your drawing. Plankton have these little cilia along the sides, so they can kind of go up and down. <laughs> also living in this pond are small fish. Have you somebody else my DDT? Not yet. Wait a minute. Here's a chance here. There's some small fish living in this pond. And what does small fish like to eat for lunch? Okay, so you small fish swim around, find a plankton, and take away their Tootsie Rolls. You lose your tootsie ball, sits down. Okay, the, the, the small fish are swimming around in the pond and they're pretty happy too, you know, right? But what, do, what eats small fish for lunch? Large fish. Okay, large fish. Up and at them here. All right, now look at these, small, these large fish here. They're not quite as aggressive as they used to be. They're getting a little green behind the gills, right? Because look at all the DDT they have in their their bodies. Okay, flying overhead, however, is a brown pelican or two. Where are my brown pelicans? Uh Uh-oh. And they're having lunch on the big fish, right? Come on pelicans, it's lunchtime. Get get up here, okay. Okay, where are my brown pelicans? Hey brown pelicans, come up here now. Bring your DDT. You guys are history. Okay, we've got some problems here folks. Look at the DDT that they've accumulated in their bodies here. From that little bit of DDT that, that came in this pond here. They've got a real, a more serious problem. You know, now when they lay eggs, and they sit on their eggs, their eggshells are too thin and they crack. You've had that problem. Recently, <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So you guys go extinct. I'm sorry. You're becoming extinct. And to, to, when you go extinct, you put your DDT back into the environment. So you okay. share. You got to share. <laughs> Okay, so you've bioaccumulated this DDT uh, through the the food chain and it it is concentrated to a level where it's causing some harm. Where where it was applied, where it drifted over into this pond, it wasn't causing any harm in that concentration, but the the organisms, you all who are living in that pond, actually concentrated it. So that's called bioaccumulation. That's one of the the things about DDT that has happened in the world. Now, to answer your question about the DDT in your body, even before you're eating that Tootsie Roll, if you, if you or anyone in this room went down to a lab and had our fat uh, fat cell from your body examined, guess what they'd find in it? Um, they'd find, find lots of stuff, but they would actually find DDT in that fat cell. Every one of us in this room. Every actually one of us in this room. Now, whether, whether you've ever been exposed to DDT, uh, have eaten it, or have applied it, or whatever, it, it's, it's so prevalent, uh, and it has an affinity for fat, and so it absorbs into the fat cells of our body. And usually, in that, that form, it's not harmful, because it's tied up, it's not causing any problem. So when you lose fat, the DDT stays the you Now, don't, don't lose weight, don't lose weight, because it releases the, the DDT, right? <laughs> Uh, so any, uh, there are two things about DDT, yeah question here. When, um, when it was in the 70s, we had a pest control in our house, mm-hmm. and I think the controversy about DDT was, was happening then. And our pest control man came out and he said, well I want you to know how safe this is, and he ate it. Sure. Yeah. A lot of people have done that. There was a, a famous professor who would every day drink, eat a spoonful of DDT powder, and he lived to 97 years old or something like that. Um, with no fleas. What's that? With no fleas. No fleas. That's right. Yeah. Um, the thing about DDT, it has low mammalian toxicity. I mentioned earlier that during the war, soldiers were asked to take off their clothes, and they were dusted with DDT powder to control external parasites, body lice, and other parasites. And, they went through this on a weekly basis. When I was a kid, they used to spray DDT with a spray can in my house on the walls and everything to control uh, mosquitoes. And flies? Flies, yeah. 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 There, there's now some concern about DDT. Are there are other, DDT is a class of pesticides called the organochlorines or chlorinated hydrocarbons. This is another class, and it's on your list there. Uh, these are long-lasting materials that are low mammalian toxicity and there's one that probably all of you or many of you have used around your homes for termite control and ant control it's called chloridane it's the same thing you know but it's gone too there's some concern because these things I don't know whether you've ever heard of endocrine disruptors it's a new uh, uh, problem that's coming up in, in uh, human health uh, studies Uh, DDT and the chlorinated hydrocarbons are indicated as being endocrine disruptors. Many things in our environment are being indicated to be uh, or implicated to be endocrine disruptors. The the plasticizers in plastic bags, actually these plastic bags here, things that make them flexible like this uh, are called plasticizers and they they are being implicated as endocrine disruptors too. So a lot of things in our environment are, are Doing that, an endocrine disruptor. The endocrine glands in our body. These are the, the glands like the pituitary, the uh, the thymus, the thyroid, uh, um, thyroid, yeah, uh, yeah, the ovaries, the testes. These these send chemical signals from one part of the body to the other, uh, and and require the body to to react in some way. Uh, so when you go into shock. That's an endocrine uh, uh, condition. This, when, when something happens and you get really keyed up and it's called the flight or fright uh, mechanism, you, these are endocrines that are reacting in your body. Endocrine disruptors can disrupt this process by imitating those uh, chemicals that the endocrine glands produce and then causing your body to react when it's not supposed to, an inappropriate reaction, or it can block the site where the, these uh, chemicals are supposed to react upon to prevent that from happening. Uh, so there, there's some concern about these materials uh, and, and uh, with the chlorinated hydrocarbons are, are being implicated. In fact, the US EPA is screening every pesticide that's being registered for its potential to be an endocrine disruptor because they're so concerned about that. Uh, there's some... The endocrine disruption is is being implicated in the increase in breast cancer in women and testicular cancer in men. Um, So that's a very serious concern. Not just pesticides, but many materials are, are being screened for that. The preceding program was part one of two parts, each 90 minutes long. There is support material available at this website, including quizzes, handouts, and lecture outlines for all presentations. Consult the UCTV programming guide for the date and time part two, and other lectures in the series will be shown. It's the Definitive Guide to Gardening, produced by the University of California. The California Master Gardener Handbook contains over 700 pages of in-depth information on topics such as selecting varieties, planting, growth cycles, pruning, irrigation, and harvesting. The California Master Gardener Handbook is available along with other gardening publications on the a Catalog website at anrcatalog.ucdavis.edu.